0: Welcome to the sag Foundation's Conversations Podcast. The sag Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sag That's www.sagafter.foundation dot foundation. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SegAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation.
1: Thank you.
2: Uh-huh. Hi, how are you? Great, how nice to see you all.
3: Raquel, I wonder if you can tell us what inspired you to be an entertainer? What, where did it start?
2: You know, I really wasn't aspiring very much. When I was a kid growing up, um, I was born in Chicago, Illinois. My father was from Bolivia, um, which is a country in South America, in case you didn't know. (laughs) Well, they didn't know too much about where Bolivia was in my father's day. Um, And he came to this country and went to the University of Illinois where he met my my mother. Um, His name was... Armando Carlos Tejada, and my mother's name was Josephine Sarah Hall, so it was kind of, you know, a very two different worlds collided there. And um, then um, the war broke out after, um, after college, after they graduated college and got married, and uh, he ended up working in um, San Diego, in the um, in the aeronautic. Um, whatever you call it, aeronautical engineering, um, Convair, uh, yeah, making airplanes and things like that. Um, so um, when I was growing up there in Southern California, I don't know, I, um, I had a kind of uh, feeling like I, I, um, I felt a little like I didn't really belong in any particular sense to one world or the other. I couldn't quite figure out exactly who I was. And I think that as a child, I just liked the idea of escape and living in my imagination. So after a while and, and seeing a couple of early movies that my dad took me to, it just kind of seemed to me that being in the world of pretend was better than being in the real world. And I kind of evolved into the easiest way to get to the world of pretend was to be an actress. And I started out as actually studying classical ballet when I was seven, and I thought I would be a dancer first, but I then was told by my ballet teacher that I was never going to be a great ballerina, so I sort of thought, okay, well then I'll I'll do some dancing, and then I'll be an actress, and I'll sing too. And so that's how I kind of evolved into becoming what I think of as an entertainer.
3: What challenges did you find auditioning for those beginning roles, and and what were some of the first roles that you had that you can remember?
2: You know, I have to say I was probably one of the luckiest people on the planet because I never really did audition for roles in the beginning. Uh, When I came here, I was already the mother of two small children. I had married my high school sweetheart. What is that little... It's not our thing. Oh. Is a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> and um, let's see. Um, where was I? So you were
3: telling us about your uh,
2: you Oh, yeah, audition? two small children. And I um, I got the first real job I got was as the billboard girl in the, at the Hollywood House Palace. So all I really did was walk on the stage. And it turned out that even though I thought I was going to work myself up in a very legitimate way to roles, that this walking out on the stage in a little scanty kind of costume was kind of the thing that got me discovered and noticed and pushed by my agents and things like that. And so I got roles based on the way I looked very, very early on. And um, I I had actually studied theater arts and had a scholarship um, to the San Diego State College to study theater arts. And so I was a little... Um, unnerved by the fact that really I was more about, you know, my figure and the way I looked that people were interested in instead of a kind of honest approach to acting. And it kind of bothered me, but then that was the way the doors were opening up for me. And I decided not to look a gift horse in the mouth. (laughs) So, um, one of the first uh, roles that I, I got really was, um, was in, in Fantastic Voyage, and that was a kind of a strange thing because I had um, I had done this little movie. What was it called? Swingin' Summer, where I was just in a bikini, and it was one of those kind of beach blanket bingo things that you do. <laughs> and um, and out of that, there had been some pictures that were circulating. And Cubby Broccoli, who is the um, producer of all the Bond movies, had thought that I would be a good Bond girl. Um, and so uh, he was making a Bond movie with Fox, and, and they, they, um, they wanted me to be this, this Bond type of a girl. Uh, but the movie wasn't starting right away, and it was kind of a technical thing, so they put me in Fantastic Voyage in order to hold on to the option that they had you know, of me at 20th Century Fox. I don't know if you could follow that, but that's how I got into Fantastic Voyage, and I didn't do the Bond movie, and then I was in One Million Years B.C., and then, well, you know what happened.
3: (laughs) Did you ever expect them to become these cult classics and that the poster would be... Still no, as popular no.
2: today? No, I could never guess that that would be what happened. In fact, I thought, you know, this is this really tacky dinosaur movie. And <laughs> I was saying to Dick Sannick, you've got to be kidding. And he says, it's a classic, darling. It's really a classic. I said, yeah.
1: Like,
2: you know, and he sent me these old movie books, you know, these big th- movie books with all the old pictures of, I think it was Victor Mature and Carol Landis made the first one million years B.C., and I was supposed to see how this was a great film classic, and I didn't see that at all. I thought, oh, no. And uh, But I thought, you know what? No one's going to remember this. <laughs> and I talked to some of my actor friends, and they said, um, you know, Steve McQueen made The Blob and Nobody, or The Thing, or whatever it was, and nobody remembered that. And I said, yeah, that's right. You know, I'll go over. I'll do this thing. Dick Zanuck is, you know, very set on the fact I've got to do it, so I'll... You know, I'll do this silly thing, and then I'll get it out of the way, and nobody. And that is exactly what didn't happen because um, we were we were so in such a remote place in the planet. We were on the top of the Canary, uh, on top of Tenerife, which is a island in the Canary Islands off the sort of like across the whatever channel from from Spain, and we're way up there in this volcanic. Mountain area with no uh, nothing around and no telephone poles or anything, and it was actually snowing. And so there I was in this little tiny thing that they had me wearing, and I was like freezing to death the whole time. It was just it was terrifying. Um, But by the time I got back from this very strange, and I had no dialogue. I thought this is terrible because you know I have nothing to say. And I thought, you know, it's a damn good thing I'm wearing this little thing I've got on because otherwise I would, you, nobody would notice me at all.
1: <laughs>
2: so yeah, anyway, um, <laughs> when I finally got through filming, I think it was about 10 weeks of, you know, running around between this rock and that rock and <laughs> so, imaginary monsters coming over the, the hill and things. I, um, I came back to Heathrow Airport in London which is the, it was actually a British film company that I was producing the movie. And I, when I got off the planes, there was this huge amount of photographers waiting for me. And it turns out that one of the pictures that was taken of me, actually just a production still, um, out there on the, you know, this volcanic sort of uh, island there, had been published all over and was all over the press, and I had become, you know, while it was snowing, (laughs) I had become this major it girl. And I, you know, I was like, really shockeroo. I said, wow, what's all this? And I have to say that it was exciting and great and fantastic and at the same time really terrifying. I thought, wow, what, what do you do with this? I mean, what do you, you know, where does it go? What, what, what's, what's supposed to happen now? <laughs> so um, that's the, um, that's really what happened. So I never imagined, Ilianne, that I would, you know, that anything would happen from that movie. And, of course, you know, that's now the whole thing that defines me forever.
3: Well, I wouldn't say that. There's there's a lot of uh, other good bodies <laughs> who weren't.
2: Yeah. Now, Myra Breckenridge was a very bold
3: choice. Yes. Uh, to
2: go from there. Um, and some people say stupid on my part.
3: Well, what were you nervous about this choice? Do you regret it or have any thoughts because
2: it got such <clears throat> mixed reviews, shall we say? Well, it got mixed reviews, but the, the sort of... Um, nice irony about the whole thing is now it's become a kind of a, a, a cult classic, really. And I think it was, well, just earlier, um, I was not nine months ago, maybe a year uh, at LACMA. They did a whole kind of retrospective of different films that I had done. And Myra Breckenridge is one of the thing, one of the films that people felt was a landmark because in a way it was very much ahead of its time. We were talking about the idea of the changing roles of the sexes, to put it mildly. And, and um, Myron, of course, was the male character who really wanted to be a female. And so he had a transsexual operation and his dream was to become a kind of, you know, female movie star. So I was cast as the female movie star that he wanted to become. And uh, Rex Reed played the male role. And um, so it was, it was quite controversial, and now I'm happy that I did it. But it was really kind of cuckoo at the time. It was really, it was really nutty.
3: Now, you worked with Mae West and Farrah Fawcett on that film.
2: Yes, uh, and, uh, and John Huston, not to forget John.
3: Not to forget John. But that's really... What was it like working with Mae West? Did you have any impressions? Well, nobody really works with Mae. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mae works alone. <laughs> And she lets you know pretty much right off the bat. And I I really was looking forward to meeting her because I'm one of these people. I'm Virgo, so I'm into the details. And I found out I was going to be working with Mae West. And so I did all this research on her. And I ran old movies of hers and read all the books and everything. And found out that she was really this remarkable talent. And that she had made her first movie at the age of 40. That up until that point, she had been a star on Broadway where she had pretty much written or almost invented the idea of camp with the, you know, oh, why don't you come up and meet me sometime <laughs> kind of a thing and the way she would walk like that, you know, and the whole thing. Um, she was great. So I was really looking forward to meeting her. And um, She, at that time, when we started Myra Breckenridge, was 77 years old. It would be the first time that she ever made a color movie. And she hadn't made a film in, I think, about 30-some-odd years. So um, this was, I think, for her. um, Now that I'm a little older, I can appreciate it. uh, She was a little nervous about making her appearance in this movie. And the last thing she wanted to do was have, you know, little Miss What's It girl of the moment, Raquel Welch, come and, you know, say, Oh, hi, Miss West. Gee, it's so great to meet you. And she's like going, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, want to just say your name once? <laughs> <laughs> so, she was not too thrilled with, <laughs> with having to work with me. But we never actually were, were in the same frame of film in, in, the, um, in Myra Breckenridge. Um, somehow she maneuvered it around where there was never a two-shot. So, <laughs> but there's, you know, I could I could probably do the whole thing on Mae West and Myra Breckenridge, but I think we ought to, we ought to move on.
3: Well, let's move on to the Three Musketeers. That was kind of a departure for you, and you were brilliantly funny in that movie, and you won a Golden Globe for it. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. What, how did you,
2: what made you read for that part? Because and, and, it was a little bit different. You know what? Roles. I wish I could say I read. I didn't. You know, I'm really... It's, it's, it's only recently that I've had to read for anything. <laughs> <laughs> really, honestly. I've never had... I never really... As I say, I was a very, very fortunate little camper because I, I got... Um, it's true. I got my stardom and my fame on the basis of my good looks. And, um, you know, sometimes I felt kind of illegitimate because of that reason, but people didn't ask for me to read and they didn't ask for me to audition. Um, And uh, so I, I, which one was that one? Oh, Three Musketeers, I was called, and, and I was told that Dick Lester was making this movie and that it was going to be a big slapstick comedy, and I thought, The Three Musketeers is a slapstick comedy? How does that happen? And uh, so then I thought, hmm So I went out and I looked at all of Dick's films and, and I saw that he was really a good director and a really good comedy director. And so I called him on the phone and I said to him, Dick, I, I, you know, I really uh, would love to work with you, but I'm a little confused. You know, the last Three Musketeers I saw it was like Lana Turner and June Allison and Gene Kelly. <laughs> Can you believe doing The Three Musketeers. But anyway, that's what, that was what I remember from my childhood. And I said, shouldn't I be playing the Lana Turner part? I don't see myself in the June Allison role. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. So anyway, I was to play Madame Bonacieux. And it was really uh, an important film for me because it was the first time that um, I knew that I was funny. <laughs> I, I had friends of mine who would say, you're funny, you know, you're funny. And, uh, and laugh at me, and, and, and we would laugh together at things. But I had never done really um, a, a full-out comedy part before, and I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. But he was a great director for me because um, when I first started out in the business, I always used to think, oh, a director, oh, great, you know, he's going to help. he's going to talk to me and sort of nurture me along and help me through the role. And it'll all be so great because he'll have the answers. And of course, that never happened. And I thought, oh, I see. So the director really doesn't direct you. You have to direct yourself. Oh, I see. So that was like scary. Because I had done some theater as a kid growing up and in high school. And I had majored in theater arts, but the camera is a different kind of an animal, and I wasn't really sure how to deal with it. Um, But Dick was a great director for me because what he did was he didn't talk at me too much and tell me too many things to do to confuse me, and he didn't ignore me and figure that I was going to do it all on my own. He just set up this wonderful atmosphere like we were all there and we were going to have a great, fun time being funny and that we were not going to try to be funny, and we were not going to indicate that this is funny now. Guys, hello, joke. Um, We were just going to, you know, kind of do a kind of silent screen kind of an approach where we were going to go through these um, kind of slapstick moves, but not telegraph it. In other words, not let anybody know it was coming. And um, so I asked him, why does she fall down? I don't know if any of you have seen this movie, The... Dick Lester, Dick Lester, Three Musketeers, but that's why I won the, the Golden Globe Award because um, my character always fell down and uh,
1: <laughs>
2: she fell down steps. She, you know, everything <laughs> happened to her. She fell down. She bumped into things. She got her skirt caught in the door. She'd trip over this and all, all the time things happened. She was a klutz. And so anyway, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Going on too long. I'm, um, no, not at all. So anyway, but I said to him, you know, why did, you know, why does she, uh, why does she fall down? Is she myopic? Like she just doesn't see. And He said, there is no reason. And you know, now that sounds like a bad director, right? But I thought there is no reason. And he said, no, you know, there really isn't any reason. It's just stuff that happens to her. And I said, so she doesn't see it coming. And he said, no, she hasn't got a clue that, that this is going to about to happen. I said, oh, I, I see. He says, well, think Buster Keaton. And I thought, Buster Keaton? I mean, that's like a really weird kind of dour character for me to think of. So I went to bed. I could hardly sleep that night. And I, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up. I started walking around. I thought, Buster Keaton, I can't do Buster Keaton. I was like... <laughs> I thought, oh, I know who I could be. I could be Stan Laurel. (laughs) Because Stan Laurel never saw it coming either. And he had this kind of innocent quality about him where it was just a little off. Just a little late. And I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll do him. And so I was so happy because and after that, I knew exactly what he wanted from me. But it was kind of neat that he just sort of made me do the thinking and he didn't have to tell me the whole thing. So it would really be, if you're actors, you know, he would really be mine and it would be something that came from me, that fit me, that made me feel comfortable and I didn't have to adopt his idea. And, um, and we had such a great time on the set. Everybody adored him. We had so much fun doing it. And, um, and then it turned out to be this great, fun experience. And my friends and agents and managers and everything were calling me when the movie came out and saying, you've got to go down here, these people laugh. You're hysterical. And I'd say, no, really? They said, yeah, yeah, you got to. So I'd go down to Westwood and stand in the back of the movie theater and see if anybody laughed. and I couldn't believe it. I thought, wow, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> you were very funny. Now, you've worked
3: with a lot of uh, award-winning directors. I mean, just you were- a few. Quite Not as many as I'd like. <laughs> uh, do you? Does each one approach the same way as Richard Lester? Or do you find that you have to adapt your style, or do you have to? How do you? How do you find working with other directors like Gary
2: Marshall, Blake Edwards, Herb Ross? I, I think I think that um, the thing that I I learned is that the director really is the director. He's like the captain of the ship, and uh, you have to find a way, even if you think he's kind of. <sighs> maybe not your (laughs) fave, maybe not your favorite person on the planet. You have to kind of find a way to really think he's great and to think that he's really got a lot on the ball and he's got everything that he says is interesting and important to you. Um, Because in the very beginning, I had a lot of directors. I think that because of the fact that I was a girl from one million years BC, they didn't really expect me to do anything, anyway, they didn't expect much of me. And when you feel when you feel that kind of a vibe coming from the director, it kind of undercuts your confidence. And so I would have a hard time in some of the earlier movies that I undertook. Um, I felt, you know, I wasn't uh, in the groove, um, in the zone, so to speak. And um, and then I thought, you know what? This is a, I have to figure out a way to, you know, really sort of hang on their every word and really make it fun for myself to find out what it is they want and all of that. And then it started to get easier because um, some directors are great and they're fun guys and great to be around and others are real grumpy and kind of misogynistic and hate women and (laughs) <laughs> All kinds of weird things. But, you know, I've had a lot of great experiences, and um, um, I've, ha- I've worked with a lot of very talented people, and, and uh, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to work under the, under the guise of certain directors and, and find out different things that don't come from me that help me um,
3: make a better movie.
2: So, Max, in our audience, I wonder if you
3: had a favorite director or for one particular director that stood out for a particular experience.
2: Oh, um, what, she got tired? No. <laughs> oh, male, female. <laughs> so, um, favorite director. Um, I I, re- I always loved Dick because Dick Lester was a lot of fun. He was just so much fun. Um, oh gosh, I try I to remember my movies. I mean, I wish I had my bio with me so I could remember them all. Um, that's okay. What about, pe- what about people you Oh, Peter with? Yates was great. I love Peter Yates. He did Mother Jugs and Speed with me. And, uh, that was with Bill Cosby and Harvey Keitel and Larry Hagman and, uh, over at Fox. And, and, um, he was, he was a love. He was a doll. Um, You know, I I enjoyed making that movie. I loved making Last of Sheila. Um, Herb Ross is a fine director. And also I loved working with Diane Cannon because she was a hoot. And she has that great laugh. And and also on that movie was um, Dick Benjamin and uh, the late um, Joan Hackett. Uh, God bless her. She was a, a wonderful, wonderful actress. And then there was Jimmy Coburn, who was amazing. And you know who played my husband? And last of Sheila was Ian McShane from Deadwood. I mean, I could not, didn't I believe that? (laughs) I mean, he was like a young pup then. And, you know, we were like this hot couple and not in real life, but. (laughs) You know, and suddenly I turn on my, my tube last year and I'm going, What? What am I seeing? That's Ian. Wow, <laughs> I didn't know he was like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm I'm thrilled for his success in this new series. It's great. Um, so uh, let me see what else. What other favorite ones? Oh, oh, Kansas City Bomber was a lot of fun to do, um, and that. Uh, what else was there?
3: Let's move on. You know, in Kansas City Bomber. How did you prepare for that? Did you roller skate already? Did you have no, to learn? No. Did they have somebody else? I mean,
2: because that was you. So, uh, Well, it but. wasn't all me, thank God. I, um, oh, that was hard. That was really hard. And uh, um, actually, I did have to learn how to skate, especially I knew how to roller skate from uh, being a kid. Uh, I roll, everyone roller skates. But on a bank track, it's a whole different thing because, you know, when you go around the curves, it sort of comes up to a 45 degree angle. It's very hard to keep your footing, you have to do this crossover step. And it was very tough, and I did fall down, but just before production started, and broke my wrist. Oh.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And it was really too bad because I broke it during a photo shoot. They had sent somebody out to shoot pictures. Yeah, I know, isn't that crummy? And and they the good news was that they were they were shooting a cover story for a life magazine. And uh, they sent this photographer out there. And he asked me to turn this way up on the track. And I turned and I slipped and fell and broke my wrist. So we had to push the movie back. And uh, Jim Aubrey was the head of the studio then at MGM. And, uh, you know, I was worried they canceled the whole movie. I was just so worried. Because this was the first movie that my production production company actually produced. I found the script. And it was from a young... um, writer who is a screenwriting major at ucla um, by the name of barry sandler and uh, i had found this script and so i took it to the studio and it was the first time i had played something that really wasn't completely the sort of raquel welch sex symbol kind of a mode oh and Jodie foster was my daughter in in that so whatever she was like eight years old <laughs> she was something she was amazing you know, this little tiny kid, and she was like, I thought, wow. <laughs> what is going on here? She's <laughs> something. And then of course later she would she became Jodie Foster and taxi driver and all that. And I just said, I cannot believe it. Look at this. You know, you just knew the first minute you later I eye, laid eyes on her that she was just really had this presence that was very unique. So and now you've always had a singing career. Did I answer the
3: question? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You did. Yeah. Sort of. Okay. Yeah. Um, you started singing
2: when you were young. You said. Yeah, well, I, 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 always, um, yeah, I always sang, and then I did a lot of vocal training to sing um, popular songs. And um, I, when I was growing up, I've sort of interrupted your question. No, no, go ahead. Well, I, uh, when thing. I was growing up, I thought, as I said to you before. Um, so, the way my, if you'd call it talent, developed, I I sort of became, I, I thought of myself as a kind of a musical comedy kind of a person, like um, Betty Grable, Rita Hayworth, Marilyn Monroe. You didn't have to really sing like Barbara Streisand or Judy Garland, but you sang and you danced. You didn't have to be a prima ballerina or Sid Cherise, but you danced. And, um, and you did light like comedy, and that's the kind of person I thought I would be in the movies. And then, of course, when I came here, they were not making musicals anymore. They just sort of stopped in the 50s, they didn't make any more musicals. So I was, like, really disappointed. I, what, I thought, you know, I, I don't know what, what they're going to do with me. Because you know, this was not... When I came along in the 60s, it was not the perfect age, uh, when I say age, era to be a sex symbol because this was the time when it was women's lib and they were saying, you know, I was a sex object and, you know, I was exploiting myself and all of this. And, and uh, I was feeling like,
1: ooh,
2: you know, I, you know, this is why I'm successful and this is why they pay me to kind of do this kind of role and this is the way I'm typecast. And now I'm getting flack from the women. So it was a little uncomfortable sometimes for me
3: you um you were doing television also at the time you were doing uh,
2: working with Bob Hope and variety shows and not and really
3: doing a little bit of that now
2: yeah. uh, I don't recall that oh well you know what I did go to to uh with the USO yeah. I went to Vietnam with the Bob Hope um USO tour and entertained the troops there and I guess there was a well, there was a special you know I yeah but that was before the real special that I did I did a couple of TV Specials. But so we entertained the troops in Vietnam and we went to the hospital ships and all of this thing. And, and these wonderful young guys who were barely shaving were these soldiers and they were like so thrilled to see um, people from home. It made them feel like you know, they hadn't been forgotten and that everyone wasn't against um, them um, because when the morale is so important to these kids when they're over there. Uh they're really young men and they have to get to be men real quick. But it was very touching and very moving to be part of that and to be um performing in front of those kind of audiences. It really was, you know, it kind of broke my heart and it still does to this day. But Bob was a, a great role model for somebody who was really, you know, a guy who came from vaudeville and his job was to entertain whether he was walking up to a young man in a hospital bed and giving him ball scores and signing a photograph and smiling and bringing good cheer or whether he was on the stage cracking a joke or doing a soft shoe and and that was um that was a great experience and then i did this uh, when you say television uh i did um i think it was in 1970 ish i did a tv um Special, actually. Um, Even back then, they were doing these Coca-Cola TV specials of um, people who were stars and things. And uh, I did one for Coca-Cola. And uh, it was called Really Raquel." And I covered a lot of different songs and and did dances and stuff like that. And Tom Jones was on it. And and I think, um, oh, John Wayne was in it. And Bob Hope also. And I did, uh, I covered the Mamas and Papas California Dreamin', we did. Uh, I did the uh, all kinds of different songs. We did Rocky Raccoon, you know that that old with with um, with Bob Hope in this bar, and I was and I played a Mae West type part before I met her, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it was something like uh, her name was McGill, but she called herself Lil. <laughs> and I had this get up like Mae West. And I know it was a lot of fun things in it. Raindrops keep falling on my head, we did that one, and
0: did a lot of different
2: uh, songs at, on that. And uh, then later on, 1980, I did a second um, television special. When I say television special, they were musical um, specials. And so lots of times when people say, you know, that I sing and dance, people go, huh? Like when? <laughs> Well, I never did have a, um, a recording career, um, but I did. Uh, I did uh, uh, sing and dance, and um, and then the the show that I did in the eighties, the the um, from Raquel with Love, we went to New York and shot it, and when that came out on ABC television, it was very instrumental in getting me my chance, my break on Broadway, because the producers of the show saw it the choreographer of the show, Tony Charmley, was also the choreographer of a hit musical by Cantor and Ebb um, on Broadway called Woman of the Year. And so when they were looking for someone to replace Lauren Bacall, you know, they said, well, what about Raquel Welch? And so I got a, um, a chance to to star on Broadway, and uh, that was like a lifelong dream of mine because if you can imagine that when I was seven, I was dreaming of being a kind of, you know, musical comedy star. This was my first chance to do that, and I was just... It was like a dream come true. I was really excited about that and still am. So you filled on Broadway. Now, did you
3: step up for Lauren Bacall, but you also filled in after Julie Andrews for Victor Victoria. Yeah, that
2: was many years later. I... I... I, um, it's 1988 eight or no, no, that's that's too late. 90, 97 maybe. I I filled in for Julie, so that's a while ago now. Um, in Victor Victoria. Well, I figured I did my Rebecca Now I could just you know <laughs> <laughs> the hay, you know. But it was kind of funny because like I'm the farthest thing from Julie Andrews that ever walked, and you know I was thinking, what? Are they kidding me? What was it? Are people nuts? Um, but you know we, we changed some of the songs and things, and I I did the this male role. Um, I did it more like Elvis Presley than <laughs> than the way she did it, which is kind of more British, of course. And, um, so I had fun with it and, and I love, I love playing Broadway and I love doing musicals and, and, uh, well, I'd like to do more Broadway actually. I'd like to do more theater and just do comedy. I don't think I need to be in a musical all the time because that's really tough. The eight shows a week with the singing and dancing. It's, it's really, really physically exhausting, really very, very taxing.
3: Is the acting itself different if you're on stage or on television or in the
2: films? Well, I do think it is a lot different. Uh, well, every different. Well, if you're doing a sitcom, that's different too because you have the live audience and you are, you know, you're playing comedy in in the broadest sense of the word. So you, you know, the timing for the laughs and everything is is critical and. And then working in film is, you know, the camera is right there, providing you have dialogue. <laughs> and <laughs> for years I didn't have much. Um, then I finally, well, you know, a lot of people thought I was going to disappear overnight anyway, so I had to really, really struggle and everything to try to um, broaden my, my opportunities and, and keep going in my career. And I'm, I'm glad to say that I was able to. Survive and go through, you know, as many different kinds of roles uh, as I have, and uh, enjoyed every single minute of it. Um, but uh, now I lost my train of thought. We're <laughs> that's uh, bedazzled. You work with Dudley Moore. Uh, yes, I work with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, Dudley- and, and the most important person. And and then he would be a, another one of my favorite directors was Stanley Donan because Stanley was, was, of course, a master. He did all these wonderful musicals. Yes, of course. And um, and he was directing this, uh, and then he did a lot of Audrey Hepburn's uh, movies and Cary Grant's movies and later on, and, and he was just wonderful and charming and classy and everything that you'd want him to be. And he directed that, so we had a lot of fun, but it was really just kind of a cameo role. I mean, you may realize now that, of course, they remade that with um, uh, Brendan Fraser and uh, Elizabeth Hurley. And um, I thought they both did a great job, and I thought she was fabulous and great, really wonderful. But I didn't think that the, "Mm, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, I just didn't think the movie worked as well, because it got kind of too big, you know, too sort of overblown, and it didn't didn't have the charm of the smaller film, which was really about, you know, somebody making a Faustian deal with each one of the the, the deadly sins. It's more fun, I think, the original. But I did think that Elizabeth Hurley was really hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which is was it, great.
3: Is it strange though seeing Another actor in a role that
2: you created or put mm. your da- you know, your brand on? Well, you know, I never felt really possessive of anything. They've done a lot of these different, you know, like cave girl movies. They make one, it seems like every other year they make a new cave girl movie. And I never feel like I own any of that. I mean, I think everything's been done before. And uh, I, uh, I feel like I was inspired by actresses and uh, personalities that came before me. And uh, some of them you would never even imagine that I would like, but, you know, I still was inspired by them. And so if somebody was inspired by something that I did, that's fine.
3: Now, you've also made some very interesting career choices for portraying an American Indian in The Legend of Walks for a Woman and A Dying Woman and Right to Die. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, portraying an American Indian, I mean, how, how did that come
2: about? Did you? Was that a... a... That was a conscious choice, actually. won a lot of awards for it as well. Um, Well, I, yeah, I, I, uh, what did I win? I've forgotten what I won on that one. Maybe I got nominated, I don't remember. Um, Yeah, well, I I had thought that it, it would be interesting to do television. It was my first television movie. If I could do something that was different and help me make a departure away from the glamour thing and um i've given that up now but <laughs> back then i was still harboring the idea that maybe i could make this transition and um so i picked something that was really different and it, it was a book called the legend of walks Far woman and uh, and um it was kind of the history of the blackfoot sioux in uh, the big sky territory of montana and and the the Indians who had survived the Battle of Little Bighorn, what led up to it and what came in its aftermath, and um, so I was, uh, you know, I was hoping to do something that had, uh, you know, some kind of um, special poignancy about American history and about Native Americans and Indigenous people, um, and uh, it was supposed to be a mini series. And then they cut quite a lot of of things out of it. So I didn't think it was totally satisfying for me. But I was glad that it got a really good rating. I think it got a 36 share, which I was thrilled with. But part of that was because I was on the cover of Life magazine, because I had just been on Broadway in Woman of the Year. And somehow the success of my Broadway um, debut... Pave the way. You know how it gets. I mean, the press loves you when you're hot, and then they don't care about you when you're not. And so they cared about me a lot then. And, and so it just sort of worked really well. Um, Grant Tinker was the head of NBC, and he put the movie out, and it got the gr- a great share. And um, uh, it, it was a project very close to my heart because I had found it and all of that. And, uh, but I, I was not 100% happy, I have to just say, with the way it turned out they kind of got to the point where they're ripping pages out of the script just to get hurry up and do it. And I felt like, oh, that was like a a rude awakening to the trials and tribulations of developing material and then finding out what happens to it when you actually go to put it on film. And, And for Right to Die, how do you even prepare for a role like that? Well, that was a role I did prepare a lot for. I didn't have to audition, though. (laughs) <laughs> actually, would you believe they actually called me? It was um, Karen Danaher had called me, and uh, she said to me, um, "This would be a big departure for you because you'd be playing a, a woman who is dying, and she's dying of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is popularly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and it paralyzes you, and uh, it's a, a pretty uh, devastating." disease. And I thought, Oh, I see. Oh, so it's going to be a big dramatic role. And I thought that might be just fine for me. I would really like to do that. And I had been on Broadway and I hadn't, you know, been back and and done a lot of uh, things in Hollywood since that time. I'd chosen to live in New York for 10 years and I came back and I, I took on this role. Um, and that's the one I, I really, well, not the only one, but I, I did do a lot of research on that. I went into the hospitals. I visited people. I went to their homes, people who had Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, and then I decided that if I was going to play a woman who was stricken with this disease, that I would not work out. You know, I'm a big workout person. I work out every day of my life, and I watch my diet, and I do all that stuff. Um, and I said, you know, you can't do that because then... You know, you're very Raquel Welchy when you do that. And this is not that kind of a role. So I stopped doing the exercise and I stopped putting on makeup. And um, I was spending time with these people and I saw how they had a hard time swallowing and speaking and moving at all. And they had like that. And then their hands would all shrivel up. And, um it was really very heartbreaking to watch them deteriorate these people, and they were all very brave and very wonderful people and you could see the human spirit was a, a an amazing thing, and it convinced me that when you die, you know you really do have a spirit that doesn't die with you when you die physically but i um I decided that in order to Understand what that was like, that I would have to lie down on the floor with nobody around and see if I couldn't move and I couldn't really speak very well and I couldn't reach out, what it would be like to have to, have to get up and go to the bathroom, get up and do something. And that feeling of helplessness, that feeling of, you know, that you are completely helpless and abandoned and that you cannot do for yourself was a thing that um, that left sense of loss of the physical of life little by little in small increments that I used for, for the role and um, because I didn't have to do a lot of makeup and I didn't have to worry about wardrobe or camera angles or anything like that that when you play glamour roles, it seems like you have to think about some of that stuff, or at least it's part of the requirement of the whole um process. It was so easy. I thought, oh my God, this is relaxing. <laughs> this is easy stuff. Not really easy. I didn't mean to make it make light of it, but it was it was a lot less, you know, uh of a concern. And I started to uh I fell in love with, with the idea that I was really involved in a character that wasn't me. But at the same time, I thought back to whoever it was that said, you know, that, that uh, comedy is hard. And I think that that's the truth. I think comedy is hard. That's the that's hard work. It's like ditch digging. It requires a lot, a lot of work. Um, <laughs> so why I chose that, I don't know. But <laughs> that, that's sort of been my lot in life, to, to be more of a comedian.
3: And then you went on to make films such like as Tortilla Soup, which I think, maybe I'm wrong, but from for me, as long as followed your career, it was really the first time that I realized you had Latina roots. And, uh, and then you went on to make, of course, American Family as well, which was a critically acclaimed series. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit, just a little bit about Tortilla Soup. And was that a conscientious decision to, to kind of be part of... Gregory Novas cast in that
2: way? No, Gregory invited me into the cast of American Family. I, th- it ended up on PBS. It was actually done for CBS. But um, uh, it ended up on, on PBS uh, for a lot of political reasons I won't go into. But anyway, unfortunately we didn't have as big an audience. But it was a wonderful wonderful um, project. And Gregory's a very talented director. And I have to say he's one of the people I've enjoyed most working with. And he called me up because he's from San Diego. And me, I, I grew up in San Diego, as I told you, and, and uh, from the time I was about two years old. And I had gone to La Jolla High School, and then I had won some beauty contests when I was a teenager. And he had lived in the same area, and he said that <laughs> he always wanted to call me up and ask me to be in one of his projects once he became a director, so he did. And uh, because he felt like I was a hometown girl, and, uh, and at that time, um, in, in San Diego, I was Raquel Tejada. And um, my first husband's name was Welch. I have two children with him, so I became Raquel Welch. And that's a name that I kept for my kids. And um, also because, quite frankly, when I came here, they didn't even like the fact that my name was Raquel. They wanted to change it to Debbie. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And I said, I don't know. I don't feel like a
2: Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, you know, really go. I like, uh, thought, boy, you know, this is just so so awful. And so I kind of fought to keep my name. I said, No, no, no. They'll they said, but it's so hard, nobody will learn to pronounce it, they won't remember it. And I said, Well, okay, we'll just see about that. <laughs> and I sort of made me, you know, just psychologically, I just felt like, mm, all right, you know, that was a kind of challenge to me. Um, so, you know, I kind of played the game. I did play Latino roles. I played a, a, a Yaqui Indian, which is um, a, a Mexican Indian um, in 100 Rifles. I played um, a, a Latino in uh, Vandelero with Jimmy Stewart and Dean Martin. And... Um, and then I did choose this American Indian role, but I think it was, um, you know, it, and, and then I, later on, you know, it, now we have a kind of, you know, there's this wonderful thing that happened. There's so many uh, Mexicanos coming over the border that the demographic of the Latin community is, is such that the politicians and the marketing experts want to appeal to the Latin audience now. So it's okay, <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, and um, so these movies of the of recent years that I've been involved in are part of that. It really had nothing to do with me specifically, but you know that more of those uh, those films were being made and television projects, and little by little. And as we know, there's so many big stars that are Latin. Um, of course, uh, famous Jennifer Lopez springs to mind, but Andy Garcia and. Vinicio del Toro and um, Antonio Banderas and, and Penelope Cruz and Selma Hayek and so many that, that you know, now it's a, a kind of different topography out there, you know. It's kind of cool to be Latina. <laughs> so it's, it's welcome. Um, and, of course, all the Latin community did recognize that my name, Raquel, was Latin name. And for the rest of the folk out there, they didn't know what kind of name that is, you know, whatever. (laughs) Raquel Welch. You know, the girl in the fur bikini.
3: (laughs) So. Yeah, but your character on An American Family was very different also.
2: Yes, that was more like a real-life person. I know a lot of the the parts that I played in movies were kind of not so much real-life people, in a way. I mean, even in Three Musketeers, you know, I was 15th century... uh, uh, you know, Madame Bonacieux, you know, she's French. Really. So with the big period costumes and all that, and, and even Wild Party, it was in the 20s. So I was always something different than I was. And certainly I was not, you know, the girl from One Million Years B.C., that was another thing. And then and, and Lillian Lust and from Bedazzled and all that. And now suddenly I was playing Aunt Dora in American Family. And uh, she was just a regular person. <laughs> who just happened to be living in an American family from the barrio in, um, in East L.A., and uh, in Boyle Heights. And, and it was a really, you know, wonderful, different change for me to just act natural. <laughs> so um, I really enjoyed it. And Gregory was, was great because he wrote a wonderful script for me where I got to sing. I didn't even ask him. He said, oh, I know that you sing and I, I've seen you on Broadway and we'll, we'll put a song in here for you. So it was great and it was a lovely story. And I, um, uh, Maria Canals played my daughter in it and um, it was a kind of a thing where, where we had a little problem between the mother and the daughter. as often happens in real life. So it was a, a wonderful role for me. I really enjoyed that challenge from Gregory.
3: Is it different working with an ensemble cast in, in a series versus a, a film where you're together for, a, you know, for months at a time, perhaps on a film,
2: but in a series, maybe it's, it's a little, is there any difference? With yeah, the people? I, I think that the series work, um, we were in the hour-long format, in case you didn't know, it's a drama. In the, the, it's more like working in theater because you still, you play the same character each time out, so you don't have to change your character And they just get you a wardrobe that you can wear every week. So you don't have to constantly do fittings and crazy things like that. Um, And you you really feel like you're a part of a family. And everybody gets so um, on the same wavelength that you really can improvise during the course of the scenes and not step on anybody's toes. And we had Edward James Olmos. We had Sonia Braga. uh, We even had Rita, the famous Rita Marino, who's so great. And Isai Morales. And... um, um, Constance Marie, who's in the George Lopez show, uh, played, uh, I think my, one of my nieces and, um, Rachel Tickerton who's a wonderful actress. And, uh, we had, uh, um, Austin Marquez played the little boy and, uh, we, we had a great time. It was just so, um, friendly and easy because we all knew one another. And I, I think that's the most fun, um. To, to play that same character, to play your same character over and over again with the same people. It's like it's it becomes so much more easy. And I think the acting gets really um, very natural that way too. And uh, people are familiar. you're not having to pretend to be familiar with people who you're not familiar with. And um, you don't have a case of nerves because you know everybody and all their ins and outs. And it's I, I really enjoyed it. It's great. Love to do it again. Do you approach roles differently now
3: than you did when you were earlier in your career? Oh,
2: I'm sure I do. Well, you know, uh, I didn't really approach one million years BC. <laughs> I remember going to the director one day and I'd say, you know, I, I have this idea. And he went, oh. <laughs> and he said, you must, you know, he says, American actors. And I said, well, you know, I thought that maybe he said, please don't think. So, you see that rock over there? That is rock A. This is rock B. When I call action, you start at rock A, you run. When you get in the middle, he said, you look up, there's a giant turtle coming over the hill. (laughs) Scream! Okay. And then you run to rock B. Have you got that? I said, oh, I see. Okay. So, I thought, oh, here we go. This is what it's going to be like, you know. And I thought, well, this is just for one movie.
1: But,
2: you know, then once you become that, that thing called a sex symbol, you know, then uh, that's a whole <laughs> okay. It's like gum on your shoe. You can't get rid of it. <laughs> so, so
3: so, now you're able to take roles like Spin City where you're kind of doing a spoof almost on yourself.
2: Well, so, yeah, in a way, you know. In a way. Yeah. But, is, that, so is that more comfort? Well, it was only like, it was all? just like sort of uh, in Spin City, I played Richard Kind's mother. So that was like, whatever, joke casting, because obviously, you know, Richard and I don't look like we're related. And he's so funny, and he's such a great guy. And of course, Michael J. is incredible, and all the other people were wonderful, and, and uh, director, producer, everybody. And uh, so we had some fun with that, and I was hoping, you know, that maybe it would, would, you know, it would work into something where I could be a regular on the show. But as we all know, Michael was suffering from Parkinson's disease, and he was covering it up so amazingly that you would never know. And here this poor man was suffering terribly, and so worried, and trying to hang on so that the show wouldn't go down. And uh, God bless him. He's a very, very courageous guy, and just so generous, and you would never know. I mean, there was never a moment of complaint or anything like that. But then that was not to be. But I, I did do, uh, they did invite me back when Charlie Sheen and, and Heather Locklear um, took over the Spin City thing here in L.A. because they were shooting it in New York. And um, I love New York because I, I just love New York. But I love here, I love here too. And um, so uh, I, I did Spin City on that East Coast and the West Coast too. But um, I would love to do a, a TV series, a sitcom or something, it'd be fun. You mentioned you had a production company. Do you produce Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that that's the best way to get projects? If You, if you, you know, I don't know if it's the best way. It seems to be that everybody has to try to put together projects that they are. There are their dream projects or the projects that they think would be interesting for them to play a role in. And for me, sometimes it's a, a role that I might like to play. Or sometimes I get to the point where I just think, well, this could be a good project. I wouldn't mind even if I wasn't in it. I'd like to see it get done, even if somebody else was in it. And, um, so I think it's, you know, it's our creative juices, all actors and actresses. Uh, We know something about the business because really in the end that camera is on us and we have to carry the tale and tell the story. And, uh, so we get to learn after a while what it's all about and all the things that make up movie making and, uh. And so I think it's a natural flow that that would happen. Um, I still think it would have been... I would have liked to have been around in a different time in motion picture history. (laughs) And because I I remember sitting next to uh, Betty Davis one time at a Lifetime Achievement Award. It was me, Betty Davis, and Burt Reynolds. And we had a really interesting conversation with Betty. And... um, of course, she had the cigarette. <laughs> and, um, and I said to her, oh, Miss Davis, you know, uh, you, know, you, know you are an idol for all of the, the actresses in my generation. I mean, we would give our left
1: tip if, <laughs> to,
2: to have the fraction of the brilliance that you had in all of your movies. I mean, there were so many of these miraculous performances. And she said, yes. <sighs> And it'll never happen again. (laughs) And I thought, you know, she's right. And then she explained to us that in her day that she used to fight cats and dogs with the producers over at Warner Brothers for the right roles and the right directors and why the script didn't go this way and more of that and less of this. And all this, you know, constant kind of battling or maneuvering to get um, the best possible opportunities for her movies. But she said, then it was worth fighting for. She said, now you get yourself a production company, right? And then it takes you four years, maybe more, to put together a project. Where is your continuity with the public? You know, it's gone by the time you get your, you know, your project put together. And that that is a difficulty because she came from a time when there was a studio system. And the studio system used to have people on staff that would make and And um, fashion, projects for Betty Davis, for Joan Crawford, for whoever it was, Clark Gable, Carrie Cooper, and later on, uh, you know, for Marilyn Monroe and for the big stars. They were were there to make a project for the stars. Now it's not like that. Now you have to somehow be a chameleon, uh, like the famous and wonderful Meryl Streep. Who can change each time because she can be anybody and fit different projects that come along, and that's what makes her career so great. I don't. I'm not that kind of an actress. I admire her greatly, but I also know my own self, and that's not who I am, and that's not what I have to offer. So I think I would have fared better in a different um, part of filmmaking history.
3: No along with all of this you were also really the forerunner in the field of health and fitness I, mean, I remember your book came out you don't and want was... to go there well <laughs> well I'm just curious because did you find that you needed to have that or was that something that you really wanted to do or did you think that you did you want to
2: have another creative outlet I, I... no 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 um, you know when when you're an actress you as you all know there um, your body your self your physical self is your instrument so if you're not doing exercise or Fencing classes, or some kind of a sport, or something—you're not doing your job. It's that simple, I think. Um, so I, I always—I uh, started classical ballet when I was seven, and then I went on and took different kinds of of dance. I took jazz, and and I took um, flamenco, and all kinds of different movement. But in the end, I ended up with yoga, which I found was the best of all possible worlds for tuning. In the mind and body together so that your mind is clear, you're in a relaxed state and that you're breaking through a lot of emotional blocks and old memories, inhibitions, insecurities, fears, anxieties, all of those things. And you're tuning up your entire instrument. So you've got flexibility, strength, balance, concentration, patience, all these different elements. And I found that when I fell into the yoga um, that it was a gift to me and I started to become a better artist and I felt like I was more comfortable in my skin and this is what I did for myself and I was lucky to find it through a friend of mine and actually in Las Vegas a little places <laughs> I was, um, I did some some uh, of those those nightclub shows in Las Vegas around the time of the late Elvis Presley um, when he was not the early Elvis Presley but the you know the other one with you know the sideburns and he was a little chubbier and had more jewelry um, <laughs> and, um, and and so I was there and I, w- I had backup singers of course and one of my backup singers said to me you really gonna do that ankle weight stuff before every show and I said well you know it's, you know, I have to have some exercise, I have to do... And she said, no, you know, you've got this stuff, that's not, that's not interesting. That's, you know, what you... And so, so she said, when we go, get back to L.A., you have to come to yoga class with me. I said, oh, no, I'm not going to yoga. No. I said, first of all, incense makes me sneeze. And, I you know, I don't like any of that kind of om-out kind of stuff. It's not for me, I don't really... And she said, no, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Come with me. So... She took me to a yoga class and I was like, <clears throat> before I was halfway through it, I was just amazed at, you know, how, what I was feeling and what was happening. And uh, it wasn't like an outer body experience or anything. It wasn't like anything mystical. It was like, wow, you know, hello. <laughs> well, this is amazing. This is great. This is where it's happened. This is where it's all, what it's all about. This is, this is where it should all begin. I wish I had discovered it when I was seven when I was doing classical ballet. I might have been a ballet, a ballerina, proper ballerina if I had. Anyhow, um, so that's how I, I I had it as part of my life. And then we had this big fitness craze. It started in the early eighties. And early on I'm sure you all remember Jane Fonda came out with her Field of Burn work Jane Fonda <laughs> workout book. And so then they of course asked me, would I like to come up with my uh, workout book because that's, you know, well, because of the body and all that, you know. They <laughs> said, so, you know, how do you keep your thing going and that, you know, how do you keep your body in such great shape? And so I said, oh, okay, well, if you really want to know, it's yoga. And they said, oh, <laughs> and i said well no that's what i really do i do yoga and i they said well can't you do the you know the leg raises and i said no no, no i can't do the leg raises said, well can't you do the field burn i said no i can't i really can't because I, I i don't do that how can i write a book or or, or do that about something i don't know anything about i said I'm, i will do the book on yoga and so it was sort of like my name you know why don't we call you Debbie? And I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and so it was the same thing. Well, why, why can't we do, you know, the, the field the burn, you know, aerobic thing? And I said, no, I don't think so. And so I did the yoga book, and it was a huge success, and it was um, translated in lots of different languages all around the world. And, uh, and now, of course, yoga is hip and happening, and everybody's doing it. Madonna. <laughs> you were ahead of your time. <laughs> And, um, so I feel like, uh, good, you know, I was right. (laughs) So while
3: we're on this beauty and fitness and you're doing a book, you, right now you have a company, you have a line of cosmetics
2: and you have a a wig. No, well, I don't, I don't do cosmetics. No, I do skincare, Skincare. um, and I have a wig collection. This, however, is not one, (laughs) um, but I do a wig collection and, um, and and it's wonderful. I I really enjoy it because I get to take part in all the designs of it, and and the you know, the way it's cut and everything. I'm really very much a part of the creative end of it. And I do wear wigs myself because I wear them for different roles that I play. And uh, they came to me after when actually exactly at the time when I was in. Um, Victor Victoria, in which I was wearing wigs. And because I wore wigs on the stage, when I came out the stage door, there would be all these people waiting for me uh, to come out, you know, as they do on Broadway, to sign autographs and all these bands. And I had to, ha- had to look nice, and I didn't really want to set my hair, so I wore wig. I wore wig, wearing wigs all the time. And somebody realized this and said to me, would you like to put out a wig line, so a line of wigs? And I said, yes, I would love to. So I've been doing that for, this will be the seventh year. And it's, a very, it's very successful. And, and we've just decided um, this last year to donate a million dollars worth of wigs to the American Cancer Society. And to... I <laughs> you know, it is really very, very rewarding because women who have had chemotherapy or some kind of cancer treatment and are the survivors of, of those treatments have gone through a real hell is losing their hair and their morale and their self-esteem along with it and the fact that they can get a beautiful stylish wig by Raquel Welch you know <laughs> makes them puts a smile on their face so it's it's that's something that has uh, been a uh, a real bonus out of this whole enterprise
3: do you think that celebrities i don't know owe the public or or, or that they really should use you know their name for Charities, because and, and, you see so many celebrities attached to charities. Well,
2: I know that Bill O'Reilly doesn't think so, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that it's a good thing. You know, you, you have this celebrity, and most of us, somewhere in the back of our minds, even though we work really hard and at and, 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 and having a career and trying to sustain a career once we've got it, <laughs> and that it isn't, uh, you know, a, a real easy road, sometimes we're all so very fortunate. And we're so much um, celebrated and treated well, if we have success, that we really do need to give back somehow. And if showing up at somebody, at some uh, charity event, pointing the finger at a cause or reminding people that we too are thinking about um, people who, who are less fortunate than ourselves and people who need help and people who are suffering, and need our care, attention, our money, our support. I think that that's a good thing. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see anything anything wrong with it. I'd rather see people use their, their time that way than, well, lots of the way they use it, I mean, so. But
3: I ju- I'm just curious, because you, you have self-described yourself here as, as a sex symbol and you were known for your body and, and your image. I'm just. Did you have any trouble with people taking you seriously when you went to these serious well, issues that you were oh, advocating? Oh well, no, they didn't.
2: Uh, well, I don't think so. Um, well, yeah, they t- they didn't take me seriously as an actress in the beginning. They said, "Well, what? You know, she's got no dialogue. Can she speak?" <laughs> and uh, and you know, it was fun because uh, there was that poster and. The women really didn't like me all that much.
1: <laughs> you know,
2: they were, like, really having a good time pulling me down. And they thought, yeah, you know. And just a body, just a face. She'll be so over in six months. And good riddance. And so, uh, you know, it, I, I had that kind of skepticism to work against uh, in my career. And in the beginning, it did uh, kind of hurt my feelings and make me feel self-conscious, but I, I had to get over that because you know, I just felt like um, you can't always ask people to love you for the reasons you want to be loved. I mean, even if you're not an actress, we know that story. People expect you to do things or like you for reasons that you think, why, you know, that's not the reason I would like you to respond to me, but this is, this is just reality. So um, I got realistic and I just have fun with it now.
3: Were there, looking back now, are there any parts that you regret turning down in
2: your career? Um, Let me see. Only one that I really felt I should have, that I really feel I made a mistake about. I turned down some roles that I, I think I did the right thing for me. But there was this script that came into, into my house. And it was called, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And I thought, well, why would anyone want to see me play this woman in this sort of, she, you know, it doesn't have any money and she doesn't have any, and she's got this daughter or these kids and she's still, I thought, I don't know, I, I can't see myself doing this role. And I was so wrong if I would have taken that role and if I would have put my concentration on it like I did In later years, you know that that role I I think got got uh, Ellen Burstyn a Academy Award nomination. Or did she win? She won. 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 Yeah. Well, you see. So, (laughs) yeah, more guts than brains.
3: Well, but conversely, is there anything that you're really glad that you turned down?
2: I think I'll leave that alone.
3: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, you know the the shape of women, the actresses nowadays—they're clearly not your shape. They're not what you. I mean, to me, they're they're pretty flat and 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 you know. Well, there's some of them out there. Well, very very pencil They got the whole men. kit. So, do you see that? I mean, do you see the change? Do you see think that there's well, there been are a, a lot of really really
2: really thin girls? I I must say, but you know, I was very thin too back then. Yeah. Well, you're thin now. No, I'm not. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> no, I'm not thin now. But, you know, back then, I don't know what I was, a size two or four or something. And I had very slender hips, tiny little waist and everything. And it, uh, and then I had, you know, the full crowd in the balcony. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was a kind of showstopper. <laughs> and um, so the whole kit together was, you know, quite... A cause for attention, <laughs> and um, but I, I think there's—I mean, there's a lot of well. Look at Jessica Simpson seems to have a lot of curves, doesn't she? Yeah. And oh, there's a there's a few out, few people out there. There's a lot of taller girls. I think I think they suddenly got very very tall. So what they've got doesn't look as much as it is because it's spread out, you know, there's so much to, you know. <laughs> And, and But it seems like there's a lot of tall girls like uh, Nicole uh, Kidman and um, the wonderful uh, Cameron Diaz and, and who else? Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow yes, and the and, uh, gorgeous uh, Charlize Theron. And, and, you know, see all these girls who are absolutely gorgeous and, and breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, they all do those ugly roles so that they can be considered real actresses. And I only did a, one of those, I think. You know, and that was The Right to Die. <laughs> now, your daughter is an actress. Yes.
3: Did you encourage her to go into acting, or...? Were um, we, are we going to take... Um... I have questions that we're going to move right into questions from people in two minutes. I just wanted to ask in
2: terms of your daughter. Oh, I didn't, uh, I did uh, encourage her. I thought she, you know, I would encourage her to to be an actress. But, you know, she always told me she didn't want to be one. But then, you know, how daughters are. They don't like to tell their mothers what they're really thinking. And if you're the mother and you're a famous mother for being an, an actress and then you want to talk to your daughter about it, they don't want to listen to you. Well, at least that's what I had happened to me, so I could give her lots of advice, but she wasn't interested in my advice. So I do not really have too much to do with her career. She really pursued it on her own, and pretty much made it uh, made the gotten her breaks um, in Cocoon, uh, which was her famous movie that she did uh, many years back, and uh, and and she could have um, sort of parlayed that into, I think, a major. Uh, career, but she was not as ambitious as I, I was. And, uh, you know, she sort of went, okay, so fine, you know. <laughs> uh, Bonnie wants...
1: <laughs> but that's... Well, lucky uh... for us,
2: she made that decision. <laughs> I, I think it's very unlucky. She's so beautiful, and she's such a great girl, but she's just not really, like I was really bound and determined I was going to, you know, have a career. And it meant everything to me. And I would inconvenience myself no end in order to have a career. You know, I came to this town with two small children in tow, no money, I didn't know anybody, and I was lucky enough to, to be able to, as they call it, break into the business. And um, uh, I took a lot of um, sort of hits on, on the way up because it was rocky to, to, to come up, you know, on, in the way that I did. But, you know, I was willing to stay in it for the long haul and go through all the uncomfortable parts and the difficult parts. And you have to really want that um, because it's not, you know, it's not always user-friendly, this lovely business of ours.
3: Uh, both Bonnie and Monica were wondering, what is the biggest challenge or decision you've had to make in your career?
2: The biggest challenge I've ever had to make? Oh, my. I never understand. I, don't, I never know how to do the best or the biggest I've been coming here really um, with my two small children in the very beginning and I really didn't know anybody here and I really didn't have any background in film and just with a kind of dream and uh, not even a car and uh, taking a shot at it was probably one of the most difficult and uh, tough decisions I ever made and I, I was pretty... Scared underneath the surface most of the time, I'm pretty anxious and worried um, to do that and come here with the two with the two babies, because one was like in a what they called then an infant seat and the other in a stroller. So I was really in a pretty vulnerable situation, uh, but I was lucky. I I made it, and uh, you know everything worked out okay.
3: Uh, Patty was wondering on. The ageism, you know, the statistics at SAGS show that women over 40, I mean, their careers just go down, but you've been managing to sustain, really,
2: quite a career you know, well over Well, they, and she was they say that, but you know, it is, a, it is a terrible, big struggle and I think that it's really um, a terrible loss. Now, it, you would imagine I would say that, because I've been around so long, since one million years B.C. Um, laughter but I, it, it, the, the truth of the matter is, I do think that just when, when you get to be around, around 40, everything kicks in so that you could really be a really first-class actress. And because of the fitness revolution and my generation of women and how we have, uh, uh, you know, come along, you know, a woman looks good at 40 damn good at 40. I mean, look at Terry yes. Hatcher, you know, Terry Hatcher and all these beautiful actresses uh, nowadays. And, you know, they're just about, you know, they're just about chopped off the, the roster um, at, at the age of 40. And I just think this is a, a, um, a real crime. I do because women and men are so viable and more so after forty than ever before. And their lives are more interesting and they're better they're gonna be better actresses and everything else. It's not that they we shouldn't be interested in the young folk as well and the the beautiful young people, the sexy young girls and the you know, hunky guys. We should but we should have a full menu of you know, movies I think and television fair out there so that people can really see life as it really is. It's not just about from the age of, uh, of 19 to 29. It isn't about just that. I mean, that's just the awkward period. You look good, you know nothing. <laughs> and you don't feel, you know, quite like you've got your footing. I mean, very rare cases anybody has anything really together in those very young years. It's like almost by the grace of God that you do anything worthwhile. Uh Scott,
3: was wondering if you could talk about some of your favorite leading men and what you took away from them. And oh, what I took them. away from
2: them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I liked most all of my leading men, actually. They were all great. And I, I always felt that that was one of the fun parts. <laughs> because, um, well, you know, I'm a woman and I'm interested in attractive men. And um, I just had a, a, a lot of fun. Well, I, I, let me see here. Where shall I begin? oh there were just so many people that i always had wanted to meet in my life and i had a big admiration for like like um frank sinatra dean martin jimmy stewart i mean those are people like when i was growing up i was like you know they were so great and i thought when i got to be in movies with them i thought oh my gosh you know I must be doing something right in this world to be working with Jimmy Stewart and one of the all-time greatest actors ever on film. And he was such a nice guy, and you learned so much from him because he was a very um, down-home kind of a, a, you know, he seemed to be very relaxed and a very kind of regular guy, but he was very concentrated all the time, and he had this very strong a professional ethic about him and one day we were leaving the set and there were all these people that that had paid money to come and look at us as you know and to visit the set as we were leaving and they all wanted autographs and so I ran into my trailer and shut the door. And Jimmy came and knocked on the trailer door and went, oh, All cow, raw, 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 raw cow. <laughs> and I said, Yeah he said, Come on, um, come on out here, Rock uh, Owl, uh, I said, Yeah, hi, um, okay. So hi. And he said, You see those people out there, they're 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 the ones that buy the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, Come on with me. And I suddenly thought, Oh, I'm being told that I this is the way to behave, you know, that you just, you know, maybe it's not your favorite thing to do and, and you're tired and I'm... And that's what goes with it. And I thought, okay, well, if Jimmy Stewart says it, it must be true then, you know. And I just, you know, pulled up my socks and said, you know, it, he's got to be right. This is part of it. You get all these other things. And if people want to, you know, wait and they want to pay their, their money for their tickets and see, you know, what movie making is all about and see the stars, well, then you owe it to him to... St- around a little bit and sign a few autographs and do it with a smile and be be gracious so that was something and then frank sinatra was um uh we, we did this awful movie called lady and cement it was really not very wonderful but he was great he's so he was amazing he did you know they say that, that frank would never do more than one take well he was always perfect on the first take so that was the thing about frank i, I maybe he wasn't always that way i don't know but he was like perfect on the first take He had great instincts and he was playing the Fontainebleau every night and I would go every night and watch him because I just could not believe, you know, how, what a great opportunity it was to see Frank Sinatra every day for weeks on end, you know, just walk on the stage and be absolutely brilliant and have all these people eating out of his hand. And uh, Dean Martin was great. Richard Burton was amazing. A wonderful flirt. Richard Burton was a Very naughty flirt. (laughs) And he used to drive Elizabeth nuts. You know, he really did, because he would... I think they had this little kind of competition that they would flirt with other people around each other to make each other jealous and things, and it was, like, really quite something. Um, Let me see who else. Uh, Robert Culp and Hanny Calder. He was great and fun, and... um, Burt Reynolds, I did four movies with Burt Reynolds. In fact, we just did a movie last year um, called Forget About It. And uh, <laughs> I hope that's not what happens to it. <laughs> but um, anyway, he's he's terrific. He He's just dynamite. He's a lot of fun. He's got great charm. I think he's a wonderful actor and comedian. And, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I always have a great time with Burt. Um gosh I I know I'm leaving out tons of people. I can't even think now but that's a few. Who would you
3: want to work with now? If you could have Jack a Nicholson. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think it's about time he worked well. He started to work with girls his own age, <laughs> women his own age. And I was so much younger than him anyway. <laughs> but, I, but I was still too old to share the camera with him, I guess. But I, I, I love that movie he did with Diane Keaton because, you know, she was amazing and it was just nice to see him in, in that situation. <laughs> uh, well, there's, there's, oh, I'd love to work with Clint Eastwood. I would love to work with Clint. And, uh, well, I did that Hanny Calder movie. I don't know if you ever saw it, but I always thought of it as a kind of female Clint Eastwood. And um, a way to kind of do this kind of independent uh, female action, Western action, heroine. And that was the idea behind that. So, What is next? You've done...
3: It all it seems. Well, I haven't really done it all. Well, but you've done. Done the best I could. (laughs) What What kind of projects would you want to look for at this stage? Now that you're,
2: I mean, well, I have. Of course, I've got my projects. I've developed. Yes, I have. I'm developing a a television series, a comedy sitcom idea, and I'm also developing a feature length film. Excuse me. (laughs) Um, and um. You know, we'll see what we shall see, and there's always something around the corner. So um, I'd like to do some more theater.
3: And Ellen's asking when what's your perception when people think of you? how would you like them to think of you as an actor, singer, dancer? Comedian, oh gosh, or just every
2: all of it? You know, I really i i I, I got humble in my middle age, and I just don't really. You know, however anybody wants to think of me, as long as it's clean, <laughs> is okay by me.
3: <clears throat> and then uh, we'll take uh, one last question. It's, what kind of advice would you give to someone starting out now? Or, or what kind of advice would you give to people who are starting out projects?
2: Oh, um... You know, I, I really think I'm a poor person to give advice. I, all I can do is tell about my my experiences and my impressions of things uh, because everybody's experience is really so um, personal and unique. Um, <clears throat> but I have to say that um, if, if you want to be... An, well, I don't, is anybody here starting out? okay starting out are you is that a girl or a boy i can't see that but the lights in my eye. restarting <laughs> you know restarting yeah that's that's a good one <clears throat> it well well that's good it's never too late it's never it's just absolutely never too late and um you know every year it's proven that it, you know if you believe in in yourself and if you're if you stay optimistic and if you stay innocent in a way that you enjoy your life and you enjoy um, those unknown opportunities and those unknowns just around the corner, that, you know, something could happen that's extraordinary and you could do a wonderful role that you would be remembered for for decades and and time to come. Um, I think that if you're starting out as a young person in this business and you're a woman, I would, would not do it if you have two kids yeah. because I think it's just too hard and um, I think it's just, you know, you just carry the weight of your children and what's happening to them all the time when you're not with them around and I, don't, I think that um, Kate Hepburn got it right, you know, you're married to your career or you decide that you're going to be married and raise children. And then when you get finished with that part of it, then you can, um, you know, you can pursue your career with full concentration and nobody, uh, nobody gets um, shortchanged.
3: Are there any other questions from our audience? We have a few more minutes. Uh, this gentleman over here.
1: Uh, have you, did you have any experience with? syndrome
0: and how did you <laughs> how did you personally react to that
2: i ran <laughs> around the desk down the hall <laughs> oh yeah oh it was ridiculous you know i mean women talk about sexual harassment there was no such thing called sexual harassment in my day and believe me before my day it must have been going on like crazy and it was just one of those things you, you just kind of he just knew that it it's kind of interesting because i do think i remember when i was about 13 and the early stages of my physical development and i would start to notice that men in particular would pay attention a little bit too much in the wrong way at a very young age and i think that every woman in her heart of hearts knows that it's different when you're a woman and you're a girl and you have um this uh thing to deal with and you know sometimes uh, not every guy is a bad guy mind you and uh and we all flirt a little bit but i found that men in positions of power um especially casting people or producers or even stars directors they would like to push you know uh, to see if they could you know get extra favors <laughs> because they were in a position where they could get you a job or or they could say, no, not her, this one over there. And it was just really a kind of uh, mm, brightening because you really did have to um, stay nimble on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> really, you didn't have to run.
3: Uh, over here in the yellow... Oh, I- Right, would you think about doing another a video or a book on on fitness again? I mean, you know, even I know it's been a while. I
2: remember, Oh yeah. <laughs> I yeah that, that was like the '80s, so it's like 25 years ago. Yeah, I remember
3: you were at Family Fitness working on some. Uh, it was a a, a a a gym on Pico, and you were working on some kind of movement there.
2: This is in the '80s, so if I don't, is, is that? What you're doing? <laughs> You mean the commercial I did at, for Ballets? Is that what
1: it was?
2: Yeah. Well, there was a there was a commercial I did for Ballets Fitness, yeah. But that that I wasn't that wasn't my um, gym. But, but, would, you consider another, yeah. <laughs> but uh, would you do another book? Is a commercial. Would you do another book? I you know I thought about doing another book for women of a certain age, you know, and how yoga can, you know, help keep you looking great and physically um rejuvenate you and keep you mentally um you know at, at top peak and all of that i've thought about that yeah I, I would consider it do you have an autobiography i'm working on an autobiography actually yeah uh, right here
3: yes uh, did you have a question over here i just wanted to wave Oh, well, hi. Hey, never
2: get
1: your chance again.
2: <laughs> do I need to run?
1: <laughs>
2: no, I'm just, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing.
1: I wanted to ask a question. Yeah. You mentioned Nicole Kidman yeah. and Charlize are uh, kind of like uh, leading up to yeah. Uh, achieve. Uh, you know, yeah. They're, they're, well, they're, they're both wonderful you, actors. Would you go ahead and do that uh, for a part?
2: I would, and I did, but nobody cared. Well, it wasn't a movie, so I did get a nomination, a Golden Globe nomination for Right to Die. But I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't win. That's okay. You know, I wanted to do it for myself. I think a lot of us, you know, do things, you know, we're in our careers because we like what we do. We're not, nobody twists our arm to do it. Um, But yeah, I would do it. I would do it, but you know what? Something rankles me about the fact that you would have to do it or you get an award for putting on a fake nose. I mean, you know, why? I liked her fine in other things that she did, and I still think that the Academy... Oh, I hope I'm not going to step on anybody's oh. toes here. <laughs> but I think the Academy ought to take an example of the fact that I don't think we can really judge comedies against dramas and musicals against the others. <laughs> <clears throat> You know, they even had to give Cary Grant a consolation prize you know when he was almost stopped making movies because they don't have a category for comedy come on you know some of our Marilyn Monroe would have had lots of awards for comedy if they were giving comedy awards she would have had to feel like she was you know um, you know not, uh, not welcome in the artistic community if they would have given awards for comedy why not now, they did actually acknowledge. I think uh, it happened one night with Claudette Colbert and and um, and uh, Gable. Yeah, and that was a, a, a wonderfully funny movie and everything. And now they did, but it's not fair to to to, to take you know the million dollar baby and put it opposite um, um, sideways. Thank you. Yeah, because I thought they were both great in completely different ways, and I would have liked to have seen you know, more acknowledgement of that. And then, you know, you have Martin Scorsese with this huge, big epic, which is, again, a whole different genre. I don't know how to get around it, but I think we ought to really try harder to be more truthful with these nominations and uh, not try to fit square pegs into round holes. I think it's... lady here in in the blue? Yeah.
3: Uh, Raquel, on the way over here tonight, I was on the phone with my son, Mark, and I told him that I was coming here to hear uh, conversations with Raquel Welsh. Uh-huh. He says, Mom, please, if you get the chance, tell her that I had her poster when I was 17 years old on my wall uh, from 1 million B.C. and tell her uh, I would love to have her
2: Autograph. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> well, that's very sweet. That's very flattering. I, I appreciate that very much. You see that girl from One Million Years B.C. <laughs> that was good, that was a great job, wasn't it? After all,
3: great. We have time to right just right for here. a
2: couple more. How about the gentleman right here?
3: Um,
0: I wondered, Miss Welch, if you could just speak briefly on early in your career. What was your inspiration? And not even necessarily anything related to the industry, but what inspired you? What drove you early in your career?
2: You mean what made me want to be an actress? Oh, no. Just
0: just what gave you the spark to just really, you know, really pursue it? She
2: looked in the mirror. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I didn't really think I was pretty when I was growing up because I had seen all these movies and all the girls that I saw that were considered beautiful or I thought they were all blondes. So I didn't really think of myself as being beautiful. And uh, I got that from reactions, you know, and as I say, when I started to, you know, get into puberty, I started getting reactions from people. I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. Maybe it's okay, actually, you know. And uh, so I, I, but I, um, you know, I just think I had that drive. Maybe it came from my father, because I think that when you come to this country as an immigrant and you want to be... American, and it's your dream. He came here to study aeronautics and space, and I think he had this kind of drive and vision, and I think something about his character got into my head. And so I had also, I found a vision, something that made me happy, something that I could aspire to, and it was to be an actress, and to, you know, escape reality, as I said before, and to be Outside the norm and be able to express myself, I felt like when I was a kid, I didn't get to say too much about what I wanted. I um, I don't want to go into all the details of my childhood, but as a child growing up, I didn't get to I didn't have a real voice in it, well, and you so it. was
0: gave me the answer I expected you to, but I just wanted the audience to hear it for themselves because oh. that's you know. And I, I applaud you for giving the acknowledgement to the parents. Oh,
2: yes, I think it is a lot in, in, in your parents. And I've looked at other actors and things. I and mean, even Tom Cruise now, who's so much in the public eye. <laughs> <laughs> and who I like, actually, because I remember seeing him in Risky Business, and I went with my daughter, and we thought he reminded me of my son, Damon, so much. We both went, Damon, you know, and... Uh, but he, uh, I found, when I read about him, his father was not present and he, his mother sacrificed a lot to, you know, give him what she could and to make sure that he was able to pursue his dreams. And I think that his mother doing that for him and the feeling that he was striving to look for, you know, a, 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 an acceptance because his father wasn't there, I think that that probably drove him. I'm only... You know, uh, no, no, don't even, I mean, I know him to say hello, but I don't know him really. But I think that there's a story like that behind most actors, quite a, quite a few of them, or they you find that they've traveled constantly and they haven't they felt like the odd man out, that they didn't they were strangers, and it was hard all the time to feel uh, accepted. And so it builds a, a funny kind of little insecurity in a way. And then you compensate for it by wanting to, you know, go out and be uh, express yourself in front of people and, and verify that you're you know, that, that you have something to say and that you are received well.
3: Uh, in fact the there? Yeah. Hi,
2: Raquel. Hi. The Lakers have obviously are not in the scene anymore, but I was wondering if you watched the game last night <laughs> and if you are glad. Spurs? Yeah, I've seen you at Laker games before. Yeah, yeah. And um, that, What do you think of Phil Jackson coming back? <laughs> well, I, but didn't they say he's not coming? Yes. Oh, yes, yes, he, yes, is he is coming. Yes, oh, yes, he is coming. Yes, oh, okay. Yes, well, no. I missed a couple of days, and you know, this yes, things changed. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I think Phil is is great because he's. I think he's a great psychologist and maybe he can make a team again out of the lakers because they're all not together are they at all well no it's not the lakers anymore but you know i do i do think that it might be a pipe dream because i think you know those that combination of all those guys together you know horry and and fisher and fox and 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 shack and kobe and but it was like they were all so amazing i mean it was they were an amazing conglomeration of talent. And I think you know you had a couple of stars that kind of thought they were the whole banana and they really weren't. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> How about the question over there in the corner?
3: Right. Yeah, you Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, great talk
1: tonight. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, uh-huh. Thank you. What's the name of your production company? Rock well, okay. and well, Productions. <laughs> Yeah. I was going to call it something sort of more racy, but I, I decided
3: to it. Right here in the front.
0: I got a two parter. One um, of your first speaking roles, wasn't it in like a roustabout with Elvis Presley? Well, I'm afraid it wasn't speaking, but I was
2: in roustabout with Elvis Presley. Okay. Yes.
0: And how was it working with the Muppets?
2: Well, aren't you going to ask about Elvis? Who cares about the Muppets? <laughs> this piggy was exactly like Mae West (laughs) when we got finished with our duet you know she just turned at me and said get rid of her (laughs) but Elvis was like I was like so gaga I was going to work with Elvis because I remembered when I was 13 or 14 seeing him live in San Diego and you know that was I thought oh that's what sex is all about (laughs) no, I get it, you know, I was not too sure, but I thought, oh, I get it now, and so it was like, from then on, my life was like, before Elvis, or after Elvis, you know, (laughs) everything was about Elvis, so I was really stoked that I got a very tiny little part in, what was it called, Roustabout, and, um, I got to actually, like, be near him, but by that time, he wasn't the Elvis, the early Elvis that I loved, and, um, but it was it was a thrill and then when i was working vegas he worked at he worked at the international hilton hotel where i worked too so i felt like i'd really arrived you know that it was elvis, elvis and me not the hilton <laughs> <clears throat> uh one
3: more and right there in the back you mentioned um your experiences with marcello
2: Mastroianni. oh marcello yes i forgot to tell you about him he was so wonderful and he was so so handsome and he was such a, a, a wonderful actor, but you know uh, the thing about Martello is he slept all the time. Really, in between in between takes, he was always sleeping. He was like, <laughs> and you you know you'd come over and you'd say, Marcello. and he'd go, Ciao, see. Si. <laughs> And I was just like, what is going on here, you know? It's really kind of disappointing. But, um, <laughs> but he's this really wonderful, mellow guy. And I had, of course, I had admired him when, you know, from the time I was much younger in those movies with Sophia Loren. So for me to be able to be in a movie with Marcello, Mastroianni, you know, it was, a, you know, like I thought I had arrived and died and gone to heaven.
3: Well, thank you so much for being well, with you. here tonight. This so was lovely. a great
1: evening. Thank you. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the SAG-AFTRA Foundation's Conversations Podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation. And reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at sag After Found. We'd love to hear from you.